Chapter One of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Three, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter One: South Carolina Secession. The delegates to the South Carolina Convention were elected on the 6th of December, and assembled and organized at Columbia, the capital of the state, on the 17th of the same month. On account of a local epidemic, however, both the Convention and the Legislature adjourned to Charleston, where the former reassembled on the following day and the latter two days afterwards. Elected under the prevailing secession furor, which tolerated no opposition, and embracing the leading conspirators in its membership, the convention was practically unanimous. There is no honor, said the chairman on taking his seat, I esteem more highly than to sign the ordinance of secession as a member of this body, but I will regard it as the greatest honor of my life to sign it as your presiding officer. The legislature of South Carolina had just elected a new governor, who was inaugurated on the same day on which the convention met. This was F. W. Pickens, a revolutionist of a yet more radical and energetic type than his predecessor Gist, and who, as we have seen, had been in close consultation with the cabinet cabal at Washington more than a month before. He was, of course, anxious to signalize his advent and to this end immediately dispatched to Washington a special messenger bearing the following letter to President Buchanan. Strictly Confidential, Columbia, December 17, 1860. My dear sir, with a sincere desire to prevent a collision of force, I have thought proper to address you directly and truthfully on points of deep and immediate interest. I am authentically informed that the forts in Charleston Harbor are now being thoroughly prepared to turn, with effect, their guns upon the interior and the city. Jurisdiction was ceded by this state expressly for the purpose of external defense from foreign invasion, and not with any view that they should be turned upon the state. In an ordinary case of mob rebellion, perhaps it might be proper to prepare them for sudden outbreak. But when the people of the state in sovereign convention assembled, determined to resume their original powers of separate and independent sovereignty, the whole question is changed, and it is no longer an act of rebellion. I, therefore, most respectfully urge that all work on the forts be put to a stop for the present, and that no more force may be ordered here. The regular convention of the people of the state of South Carolina, legally and properly called, under our Constitution, is now in session, deliberating upon the gravest and most momentous questions, and the excitement of the great masses of the people is great, under a sense of deep wrongs, and a profound necessity of doing something to preserve the peace and safety of the state. To spare the effusion of blood, which no human power may be able to prevent, I earnestly beg your immediate consideration of all the points I call your attention to. It is not improbable that under orders from the commandant, or perhaps from the commander-in-chief of the army, the alteration and defenses of those posts are progressing without the knowledge of yourself or the Secretary of War. 
the arsenal in the city of charleston with the public arms i am informed was turned over very properly to the keeping and defence of the state force at the urgent request of the governor of south carolina i would most respectfully and from a sincere devotion to the public peace request that you would allow me to send a small force not exceeding twenty-five men and an officer to take possession of fort sumter immediately in order to give a feeling of safety to the community there are no united states troops in that fort whatever or perhaps only four or five at present besides some additional workmen or laborers lately employed to put the guns in order if fort sumter could be given to me as governor under a permission similar to that by which the governor was permitted to keep the arsenal with the united states arms in the city of charleston then i think the public mind would be quieted under a feeling of safety and as the convention is now in full authority it strikes me that could be done with perfect propriety i need not go into particulars for urgent reasons will force themselves readily upon your consideration if something of this kind is not done i cannot answer for the consequences I send this by a private and confidential gentleman who is authorized to confer with Mr. Trescott fully, and to receive through him any answer you may think proper to give to this. I have the honor to be most respectfully, very truly, F. W. Pickens, to the President of the United States. Arrived in Washington, the special messenger who bore this document sought the active agent of the Central Cabal, Mr. Trescott assistant secretary of state and was by him on thursday morning december twentieth conducted to the white house and presented to mr buchanan to whom he personally delivered his communication the president received the document and promised an answer to it on the following day the temper and condition of his mind is plainly reflected in what he wrote he seems to have realized no offense in this insult to the sovereignty and dignity of the united states whose constitution he had sworn to preserve, protect, and defend. No patriotic resentment against the South Carolina conspirators, who, as he knew by the telegraph, were assembling that same day in convention to inaugurate local rebellion. His whole answer breathed a tone of apology that his oath and duties would not permit him to oblige the South Carolina governor and he feebly groped for relief from his perplexities in the suggestion that Congress might perhaps somehow arrange the trouble. This was the answer prepared. Washington, December 20th, 1860. My dear sir, I have received your favor of the 17th instant by Mr. Hamilton. From it I deeply regret to observe that you seem entirely to have misapprehended my position, which I supposed had been clearly stated in my message. I have incurred and shall incur any reasonable risk within the clearly prescribed line of my executive duties to prevent a collision between the Army and Navy of the United States and the citizens of South Carolina in defense of the forts within the harbor of Charleston. Hence I have declined for the present to reinforce these forts, relying upon the honor of South Carolinians that they will not be assaulted whilst they remain in their present condition but after commissioners will be sent by the convention to treat with Congress on the subject. I say with Congress, because, as I state in my message, apart from the execution of the laws so far as this may be practicable, 
the executive has no authority to decide what shall be the relations between the federal government and south carolina he has been invested with no such discretion he possesses no power to change the relations heretofore existing between them much less to acknowledge the independence of that state this would be to invest a mere executive officer with the power of recognizing the dissolution of the confederacy among our thirty-three sovereign states it bears no resemblance to the recognition of a foreign de facto government involving no such responsibility any attempt to do this would on my part be a naked act of usurpation as an executive officer of the government i have no power to surrender to any human authority fort sumter or any of the other forts or public property in south carolina to do this would on my part as i have already said be a naked act of usurpation it is for congress to decide this question and for me to preserve the status of the public property as i found it at the commencement of the troubles if south carolina should attack any of these forts she will then become the assailant in a war against the united states it will not then be a question of coercing a state to remain in the union to which i am utterly opposed as my message proves but it will be a question of voluntarily precipitating a conflict of arms on her part without even consulting the only authority which possesses the power to act upon the subject between independent governments if one possesses a fortress within the limits of another and the latter should seize it without calling upon the appropriate authorities of the power in possession to surrender it this would not only be a just cause of war but the actual commencement of hostilities no authority was given as you suppose from myself or from the war department to governor gist to guard the united states arsenal in charleston by a company of south carolina volunteers in this respect you have been misinformed i have therefore never been more astonished in my life than to learn from you that unless fort sumter be delivered into your hands it cannot be answerable for the consequences it is easy to infer from results that while mr buchanan was laboring over this document the central cabal was busy they saw that the rash zeal of governor pickens was endangering the web of conspiracy they had wound around the president he was committed to non-coercion committed to non-reinforcement committed to await the arrival of south carolina commissioners this new demand from a new authority not only indicated a division of sentiment and purpose in the insurrectionary councils of the palmetto state but created an opportunity through which mr buchanan under a possible healthier impulse of patriotism might repudiate the whole obligation of non-resistance to their schemes into which they had beguiled him they clearly saw as they themselves explained that though he would not deliver sumter now he might be willing to approach such action hereafter a possibility not at all improbable and which ought to be kept open mr trescott therefore hastened to take the advice of two of the south carolina congressmen mcqueen and bonham and it was not a violent presumption to assume also of the chief senatorial conspirators for only six days had elapsed since the congressional circular was signed and published which called upon the cotton states to proceed with the plot of secession and the formation of a southern confederacy a telegram was at once sent to charleston mildly explaining to governor pickens the blunder he was making in asking his authority to withdraw his letter to mr buchanan 
Governor Pickens must be credited with astuteness enough to comprehend the situation, for he gave the consent requested. On Friday morning Mr. Trescott waited upon Mr. Buchanan and informed him that he would not be required to answer as Governor Pickens had withdrawn his demand, and Mr. Trescott records, with an evident appreciation of the affair as a successful stroke of policy, that the withdrawal of the letter was a great relief to the President. To understand more fully the whole scope and spirit of the incident, we must read the report of it which he then transmitted to Charleston. Washington, December 21, 1860 to His Excellency F. W. Pickens, Governor of South Carolina. Sir, your confidential letter to the President was duly delivered to him yesterday by D. H. Hamilton, Esquire, according to your instructions. It was withdrawn, no copy having been taken, this morning by me under the authority of your telegraphic dispatch. Its withdrawal was most opportune. It reached here under circumstances which you could not have anticipated, and it produced the blank effect upon the President. He had removed Colonel Gardner from command at Fort Moultrie for carrying ammunition from the arsenal at Charleston. He had refused to send reinforcements to the garrison there. He had accepted the resignation of the oldest, most eminent, and highest member of his cabinet, rather than consent to send additional force and the night your letter arrived, he, upon a telegraphic communication that arms had been removed from the arsenal to Fort Moultrie, the Department of War had issued prompt orders by telegraph to the officer removing them to restore them immediately. He had done this upon his determination to avoid all risk of collision, and upon the written assurance of the majority of the congressional delegation from the state that did not believe there was any danger of an attack upon the forts before the passage of the ordinance, and an expression of their trust and hope that there would be none after, until the state had sent commissioners here. His course had been violently denounced by the northern press, and an effort was being made to blank a congressional investigation. At that moment he could not have gone to the extent of action you desired, and I felt confident that if forced to answer your letter, that he would have taken such ground as would have prevented his ever approaching it, hereafter, a possibility not at all improbable, and which ought to be kept open. I considered also that the chance of public investigation rendered the utmost caution necessary as to any communication from the State, and having presented the letter, and ascertained what the nature of the reply would be, you had all the advantage of knowing the truth, without the disadvantage of having it put on record. And besides this, the President seemed to think that your request was based upon the impossibility of your restraining the spirit of your people, an interpretation which did you injustice, and the possibility of which I deemed it due to you to avoid. He also appeared to labor under the impression that the representations of the members of Congress and your own differed, essentially, and this, I thought, on account of both, should not be stated in any reply to you. I was also perfectly satisfied that the status of the garrisons would not be disturbed. Under these circumstances, if I had been acting under formal credentials from you, and the letter had been unsealed, I would have delayed its presentations for some hours, until I could have telegraphed you, but that was impossible. As Mr. Hamilton, therefore, had brought with him General McQueen and General Bonham, when he called on me and delivered the letter, and had even gone so far as to express the wish 
that they should be present when he delivered it to the president, a proposition which they declined, however, I deemed it not indiscreet, nor in violation of the discretionary confidence which your letter implied, to take their counsel. We agreed perfectly, and the result was the telegraphic dispatch of last night. The withdrawal of the letter was a great relief to the President, who is most earnestly anxious to avoid an issue with the State or its authorities, and I think has encouraged his disposition to go as far as he can in this matter, and to treat those who may represent the State with perfect frankness. I have had this morning an interview with Governor Floyd, the Secretary of War. No order has been issued that will at all disturb the present condition of the garrisons, and while I cannot even here venture into details which are too confidential to be risked in any way, I am prepared to say, with a full sense of responsibility, that nothing will be done which will either do you injury or properly create alarm. Of course, when your commissioners have succeeded or failed to effect their negotiations, the whole issue is fairly before you, to be met as courage, honor, and wisdom may direct. My delay in answering your telegraph concerning Colonel Huger was caused by his absence from this place. He came in reply to my telegraph last night, and this morning I telegraphed upon his decision, which I presume he has explained by a letter of this same date. As Dr. Hamilton leaves this evening, I have only time to write this hurried letter, and am, sir, very respectfully, William Henry Trescott. I enclose your confidential letter in this. We must now turn our attention from the executive rooms of the presidential mansion in Washington to the executive rooms of South Carolina in Charleston, where on the same day a counterpart of the transaction we have described was going on. Since the beginning of these new troubles, especially since the discussion and issuing of his message, President Buchanan had been anxious and ill at ease. He could not shut his eyes to the fact that in South Carolina, at least, the tide of revolution was steadily rising. He appears to have dimly felt that his official responsibility and honor were somehow involved, and since he had reasoned the executive power into nothingness, the idea suggested itself to his mind that a little friendly expostulation at least was due from him. Under some such impulse, he wrote the following letter to Governor Pickens, and with it dispatched Caleb Cushing to Charleston, to see if he might not exert a personal influence upon the malcontents who paid no heed to any wishes or interests but their own. Washington, December 18th, 1860. My dear sir, from common notoriety I assume the fact that the state of South Carolina is now deliberating on the question of seceding from the Union. Whilst any hope remains that this may be prevented, or even retarded, so long as to allow the people of her sister states an opportunity to manifest their opinions upon the causes which have led to this proceeding, it is my duty to exert all the means in my power to avert so dread a catastrophe. I have, therefore, deemed it advisable to send to you the Honorable Caleb Cushing, in whose integrity, ability, and prudence I have full confidence, to hold communication with you on my behalf for the purpose of changing or modifying the contemplated action of the State in the manner I have already suggested. Commending Mr. Cushing to your kind attention, for his own sake as well as that of the cause, I remain very respectfully your friend, James Buchanan. His Excellency, Francis W. Pickens. 
Mr. Cushing was a man of great affability and of prominence in the Democratic Party. He had been Attorney General under President Pierce, and was called to preside over the Charleston Convention, until the dissension in that body between Northern and Southern Democrats caused its disruption and adjournment to Baltimore. In the second disruption at Baltimore, Mr. Cushing had followed the fortunes of the Southern leaders, and with them had seceded and presided over that fraction of the original body which nominated Breckinridge. Though a Massachusetts man, he was thus affiliated in party principle, party organization, and party action with the South, and President Buchanan not unnaturally thought that he was personally an agreeable agent, and ought to be an influential party representative, capable, on behalf of the administration, of dissuading the Charleston conspirators from their dangerous determination, or at least from their reckless precipitancy. But the sequel shows that Buchanan both misunderstood the men he had to deal with, and was unequal in purpose, and will to cope with their superior daring and resolution. Mr. Cushing arrived in Charleston on the day the South Carolina Convention passed its ordinance of secession. He obtained an interview with the governor, and presented the president's letter. I had but a short interview with him, said Governor Pickens in his message of November 5th, 1861, and told him I would return no reply to the president's letter, except to say very candidly that there was no hope for the Union, and that, as far as I was concerned, I intended to maintain the separate independence of South Carolina, and from this purpose neither temptation nor danger should for a moment deter me. There is a notable contrast in this haughty and defiant reception by a South Carolina governor, the messenger of the President of the United States, to the cringing and apologetic spirit in which the President had on that same morning received the messenger of the governor, and replied to his demand. Mr. Cushing's reply deserves special notice. He said, continues Governor Pickens, that he could not say what changes circumstances might produce, but when he left Washington there was then no intention whatever to change the status of the forts in our harbor in any way. By this language, Mr. Cushing himself seems to have changed his errand from a patriotic mission of protest and warning to one conveying advantageous information to the conspirators. It could hardly have been without a sense of personal mortification to Mr. Cushing that the drama which he had been sent to avert, or at least to postpone, immediately unrolled itself under his very eyes, and his mortification must have risen to indignation when he was requested by his presence to grace the pageant. The South Carolina Convention, during the two days which had elapsed since the adjournment hither from Columbia, had been deliberating in secret session. A little after midday on December 20th, the streets of Charleston were filled with placards giving the public the first notice of its actions. The usual jubilations immediately followed, ringing of bells, salutes of cannon, and the noise and display of street parades. The convention resolved to celebrate the event further by a public ceremonial to which it invited the governor, the legislature, and other dignitaries, and both branches of the legislature also sent a committee to Caleb Cushing, to give him an official invitation to attend. At half-past six that evening the members of the convention marched in procession to Institute Hall, where the public signing of the Ordinance of Secession was performed with appropriate solemnities, and at its close the presiding officer announced, 
the ordinance of secession has been signed and ratified and i proclaim the state of south carolina an independent commonwealth the city and the state joined in general exultation as if a great work had been accomplished as if the efforts of a generation had been crowned with fulfillment and nothing remained but to rest and enjoy the ripened fruit of independence there seemed to be no dream amid all this rejoicing that nothing definite had yet been effected and that the reckless day's act was but the prelude to the most terrible tragedy of the age the unchaining of a storm which should shake the continent with terror and devastation leaving every southern state a wreck and sweeping from the face of the earth the institution in whose behalf the fatal work was done the secession ordinance having been passed signed and proclaimed the convention busied itself for the next few days in making up a public statement of the reasons for its anomalous procedure the discussion showed a wide divergence of opinion as to the causes which had produced the act one ascribed it to the election of lincoln another to the failure of the northern states to execute the fugitive slave law a third to the anti-slavery sentiment of the free states a fourth to the tariff a fifth to unconstitutional appropriations by congress and so on on the twenty fourth of december the convention adopted a declaration of causes and an address to the slaveholding states the two papers together embracing the above and other specifications since neither the constitution of the united states nor the laws of congress contained any section clause word or reasonable implication that authorized an act of secession the declaration of causes formulated the doctrine of states rights in justification the doctrine in substance was that the several states entered the union as sovereignties that in forming the federal government they delegated to it only specific powers for specific ends that the federal government was not a sovereign over sovereignties but was only an agent between them that there existed no common arbiter to adjudge differences that each state or sovereignty might judge for itself any violation of the common agreement and choose its own mode of redress consequently that each state might adhere to or secede from the union at its own sovereign will and pleasure this doctrine springing from early differences of constitutional interpretation had not been promulgated in its ultra form until south carolina's nullification movement in eighteen thirty two it had been accepted and sustained by only a small fraction of the american people the whole current action and development of the government of the united states under the constitution was based upon the opposite theory washington and the succeeding presidents rejected it in their practical administration marshall and the supreme court condemned it in their judicial decisions webster refuted it in his highest constitutional arguments congress reputed it in its legislation jackson denounced it in executive proclamation as treasonable and revolutionary and the people of the union at large regarded it as an absurd and dangerous political heresy end of chapter one